Happening now, we're going to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode number 184 for July 22nd, 2020. My name is Jason Neifer. I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the fabulous University of Montana campus here in Missoula, Montana. But I'm not alone tonight, as always, Joining me for the EdTech Situation Room, good evening, Dr. Fryer. How are you tonight? Good evening, Dr. Neifer. I am feeling uh, a little better since I have a virtual background, although it is not, I don't know, they're, they're, they both are a little uh, a little different there, but I, I think you have the fancier, the fancier background. Look at that, folks. He can put any YouTube video he wants right behind him. Uh, I tried doing that with a train video in Zoom, uh, this week, it was just a little bit, I think it was a little bit too distracting. Yeah. But I am the um, the fifth grade Spanish teacher <laughs> at the Catholic school uh, for this year. Actually, I'm one of two, uh, but I'm also teaching media and computer, well, media and digital literacy. So I have an official job title of, uh, you know, technology integration and innovation specialist. But in the, you know, in the global pandemic in which we find ourselves, flexibility is the key. So Happy to be joining you, and it has been a rainy uh, July. <clears throat> We've been having, you know, storms, you know, at least every week, uh, but it's just, it's in the 90s, but it's not over 100, and, uh, you know, we are enjoying sheltering in place. Sad to not be going to the mountains as we typically do every uh, summer, but, um, hey, uh, they, there there are some, some spikes happening, and when the governor of New Mexico says stay home, uh, who am I to disagree, so... Ain't that the truth? And, uh, you know, we will be talking some pandemic tonight. Sorry, we really can't avoid it. It is a, obviously a massive topic throughout all realms of education. But we have lots of topics to talk about tonight. The EdTech Situation Room is a once-a-week podcast where we check out the week's technology news and kind of shoot it through an educational prism to find if there are any uh, crossovers between what's going on in the broader tech field and in technology education. Uh, we take all of our source material and put it into a massive document where you can go to edtechsr.com slash links and check out all of our past uh, links and uh, show notes. Uh, but tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about back to school, privacy, security, some international intrigue as it relates to the infamous TikTok. We'll probably dig a little bit into Microsoft, Chrome, and Google. There's some technology correction and media literacy articles. Um, Wes, I'm going to go ahead and suggest that we start with COVID. And I put in several articles tonight from major school districts. Notably, most of these are school districts on the West Coast. And I think that there may be um, maybe some interesting uh, geographical differences there, but uh, lots of districts have announced this, but Seattle Public as of today, Nashville, San Diego, LA Unified, Portland Public in Portland, Oregon, all have announced they will start online. And um, the uh, I have some information about some Montana schools too, uh, and it, it more or less what the discussion looks like here. But the thing I do want to note is that of all these schools, I thought the most interesting one was Portland Public Schools. And I, I have some friends that they don't teach in Portland Public, but I have friends and family that teach around those districts and, and near those districts. And so obviously they're the largest school district in the state and, and, and obviously serve a large number of students. But 
I thought it was very interesting that they their official start of school is two weeks after the start of school. And in the first two weeks, teachers are going to establish contact with every student in their class. They're going to check in with them to talk about processes and procedures. They're going to get to know them over the phone. They're going to make sure they have the equipment and uh, the setup they need to be successful in distance learning. And they're going to start the school year off then two weeks later with formal lessons uh, once there's been kind of an orientation period. And I got to say, as uh, 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 someone that works in the state virtual school, I think that's an extremely savvy move on the port of a part of Portland public, which say that 10 times fast. And the, uh, the kind of knowledge that when you are introducing a new school year in a remote teaching, distance learning, blended learning, whatever you want to call this environment, that initial relationship building and also making students and teachers comfortable with one another, not only in their relationships, but also in the technology. I think that's a really clever move. But uh, all these uh, uh, school districts dying to go online. The other notable one, and this just happened this afternoon, is the, the Seattle Times is reporting that uh, Superintendent Denise Judo is, has announced they will start online as well. And uh, Seattle Public um, uh, was a, a school district that actually decided not to go online until relatively late in the spring 2020 semester, they they deferred to uh, packets and and paper uh, materials to students uh, at first and experimented with technology, but didn't seem to do more than that. And I know that a lot of the kind of tech elite in the broader Seattle area, obviously um, Redmond, Washington, the home of Microsoft, so lots of techies in that region. Amazon is hosted in in Seattle itself, along with huge Google offices, uh, lots of, of of tech companies uh, call Seattle their home. Um, but it is interesting that after it looked like they were going to try to do some kind of face-to-face -face presence, they've moved on online as well. So, Wes, I guess I'd start with you. Do you have any particular districts that you want to talk about or any thoughts about these initial announcements? Sure, absolutely. We've had some big announcements here as well. Um, I just dropped into the chat the KOFR News 4 article about Oklahoma City Public. We have you know, we've mentioned this before. Oklahoma and, and Montana share some similarities. We are not nearly as big, but we're very rural with over 500 districts, most of which have under 200 students. The, the biggest notable exceptions to that, and there's actually several, but the biggest ones are Oklahoma City Public, which I think has around uh, between 40 and 50,000 students, and then Tulsa Public Schools. Well, Oklahoma City just announced yesterday that they're going to delay the start of the school year till the end of August and they're going to start remote for at least nine weeks. And so um, one of the things that will be interesting to see as far as what kind of preparation are they going to do with teachers, because they did a lot of centralized things for students and families, but they, um, you know, weren't as focused on every teacher, you know, teaching remotely uh, at, at, you know, last year. So, our school, Cassie School, um, is actually um, going to be having some um, town hall meetings next week on Monday and Tuesday, which I'm actually going to be facilitating. Um, and, um, you know, we had been planning and this part of the, the part that's been emailed out is we had been planning to, to come back as teachers on August 3rd and then a week later start with students. And now it looks like we're going to be coming back. Students are going to be coming back um, on August 14th. And uh, we are going to be having a hybrid option, um, which will uh, the, the public school districts around us, I, I think 
every single one of them has been giving options to parents. So if you want your kid to stay at home and be remote, um, and so anyway, that I don't want to, uh, steal thunder and there's been, you know, some press releases, but anyway, our start date just changed and, uh, start dates are changing for a lot of folks. And I think we've talked on the show, uh, you know, that this situation is extremely, um, volatile and, and changeable. And so, you know, schools have been hesitant to, to, you know, say definitively what they're going to do because they haven't known what the situation was going to be at the end of July and in August. So um, based on this, Dr. Neifer, what 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 is your crystal ball say? Do you do you have a, a prediction for beyond just, you know, August? Well, um, I, I would say that uh, I, I do not know of any district in Montana that's announced that they're going all online. And in fact, the most of the announcements thus far seem to be that there will be a choice involved, that there will be face-to-face environments uh, available for students that want to go to face-to-face school. There will be online environments available uh, for those that want to um, uh, to stay home. And uh, a couple thoughts about this. The first one is that the online environment, um, uh, well, most districts that are announcing the, uh, the uh, opportunity for both are making clear that you can't just keep switching back and forth, that if you're home, you got to stay home. And if you're in school, then you can move home if you have a health reason to do so. But otherwise, you got to kind of stick within one mall or the other. And I've seen both some draft language and released language about things like uh, 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 participation expectations, attendance expectations, particularly for younger students where there is a legal requirement to engage in school. Um, I've also seen some indicators about uh, you know all the scheduling that they're working on. I know that um, I had heard secondhand some information today about uh, a middle school, larger middle school in Montana that's working on their strategy is going to be to teach uh, to teach courses in basically blocks. So it's uh, you know four to five weeks to get through a semester of two core classes like social studies and science. Um, students stay in the same room and the same teacher teaches both subjects so that there's not a lot of trade around. I've also heard of shortened school days. Um, uh, I've heard of AB day schemes, um, sometimes uh, 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 going every other day, although it seems like the money is on um, having students trade off, like one week you go three days uh, and the other group goes two days and they flip around and Wednesday is the flip day going back and forth. I've heard a lot of interesting schemes there. Um, I also saw an article uh, last week about the, the 1918 influenza pandemic that said that one of the strategies that a lot of schools used not as realistic in Montana is to basically move school outdoors. So you take, you know, large parks, you take the football field, you take the campus grounds, you take the parking lot, you socially distance students um, where appropriate and then otherwise hold class. That would work in lots of places in Montana uh, up until about October 15th, and then it would get a little rough. But um, although, to be clear, the first day uh, I started attending college, this was August, uh, late August 1992, there was a massive snowstorm in Helena. So you never know when it's going to snow in Montana. But, yeah, lots of interesting pieces. And the one that I think is most interesting to me is the fact that they are asking parents to make the decision on behalf of your student that's best for you and your family but also understand that there, you know, there's implications 
um, to making a decision. Like it, it schools can't really, you know, uh, have mass numbers of students start in one model, and move to the other. And I've seen a lot of districts seem to suggest that the seven to 10 week mark. So which would be a quarter or a trimester, depending on how you are scheduling, like we're, that's what we're going to do for the first quarter or trimester. And then we'll see how things go. And I think that's also a wise strategy too, that, you know, if you are going to try to offer all those options in all those ways, keeping your options open and then setting a date where you can kind of reconfigure, I think is going to be part of it as well. Yeah. Well, I'm expecting us to go back face to face. Um, and, but I'm, as I'm approaching uh, the idea of designing, you know, for this environment, um, my approach is to design for, for remote learning. And then if we end up being face to face, that is yeah. fantastic. Um, I've, ha- I've had the fortunate opportunity this summer to participate in three different fantastic virtual conferences. The first was the, the MSON or Malone Network conference. It was at the end of June. Last week was the Mountain Moot, which uh, Peggy was able to join us and said she just in the chat, she had a great experience. Uh, I really did too. Man, it was invigorating. I mean, it's just a great community and you've got such a great, you know, core group of folks that have been connecting face to face. And then, you know, so the virtual, it's just like, well, it's similar to what happened with emergency remote learning in the spring. We had our students in class and then we went remote. I mean, that is a very different dynamic than just showing up, you know, with folks that you don't know. And and then you're making those connections remote. This week, I'm in the digital or the Summer Institute uh, in digital literacy. And so anyway, in each one of these, um, you know, it's been it's been great to see the use of these different tools, uh, hearing teachers talk and, you know, concerns about health. I I don't know if any schools are giving teachers an option like, you know, parents and kids are having. I do know that a number of our schools are looking to outside vendors. Like I know Edmond Public Schools to the north is doing this uh, where they're just, you know, have already a virtual high school option and then students are being able to do it. But I've heard a lot like and this is back to June with MSON, a number of teachers there were expecting, you know, that that. Uh, they would just have students that were going to be at home and they were going to need to, to live stream and to try to do both of those things. So that's going to be an interesting thing to see how we navigate. Uh, we've been having conversations and I've been working on some plans. Uh, basically, it's a lecture cast to facilitate our faculty who aren't flipping a lesson or, you know, using a screencast or some other kind of video method um, to be able to record their their uh, lecture or the, or the bulk of their lesson, but then not providing that live to students, but providing that after the fact. Um, so, you know, it's going to be it's going to be pretty interesting to see how all this uh, works out and then also how the numbers are. I'll say one other story, and I don't have a link for this, but the uh, fantastic mechanic that works on our cars and has a downtown um, shop. You know, hey, if anybody wants to to, to uh, go go to his, his shop, it's Todd at Downtown Auto Repair. He's fantastic down on 10th Street. His daughter just graduated from uh, Edmond High School, and she's off to Stanford. And so I was visiting with him a week ago, and you know, they she had debated gap year, et cetera, and what what to do. Uh, she's going, but she, they have two months of face-to-face, and then they're planning to be remote until July. So one of the ways they're reducing their numbers of folks in academic buildings is by giving by class, you know, the time that you can be face-to-face, and then you go remote. I hadn't hadn't heard of that anywhere else. 
so anyway, there's going to be different approaches that folks are taking. I'm pretty sure I, I read that Harvard is is virtual, you know, completely. Um, and so, you know. Actually, I heard something interesting about Harvard, and uh, this could have changed, but this was going around a lot of, I, I, I'm in a lot of conversations with higher ed folk because of, of where my office is located. we got a higher ed guy in, in our staff. Um, they're actually going to do it in a very interesting way. They're going to only allow freshmen on campus in the fall because they can socially distance the freshman class in both dorms and in, in facilities there because they want to build those relationships. And then they're going to move freshmen online in the spring. And then second semester, they're going to bring seniors back to celebrate their last semester. And, and also because they can handle about a fourth of their overall class and their facilities. I thought that was very insightful and, you know, worthy of the Harvard name. But, you know, I think it, again, there, it, in a lot of situations where there's not a lot of ideal, you know, uh, one size fits all solutions. I do think some extremely innovative and thoughtful solutions are coming, uh, uh, uh coming ahead in the process. One other article that I put under that headline of back to school is actually a tweet, and uh, it's from Peggy's home state, my birth state, Arizona. It's from Arizona Technology and Education. Um, I subtitled it, and I'll put it this way in the show notes, Emergency Educational Connections Act of 2020. But uh, this is a tweet from uh, Arizona Tech and Education, and it says, when 35% of Native American, 30% of Black, and 26% of Latino uh, students do not have adequate internet access. Connectivity becomes an equity issue. We must close the homework gap, urge Congress to support Emergency Educational Connections Act of 2020. And their graphic in there says that 16 million students do not have the access to technology that they need to learn from home. And I certainly would say, based on my, you know, conversations with, uh, with Oklahoma, uh, you know, educators and colleagues, uh, you know, there's just some super wide gaps. And it's not just that, hey, we got to get you a Chromebook or an iPad. It's also that, oh, yeah, there's not Internet access available where you live. I mean, high speed Internet, re reliable. And so um, these are big issues. And I, de I do think that we need to advocate to step up to to meet these educational gaps. And there's a lot of expenses that schools need to bear. I mean, there are for elections too, right? If you want to do things safely in this environment, you know, the, the, the sanitizing, you know, the, the extra materials, um, the things that go into trying to provide a safe, socially distanced environment costs money. And so um, I think we need to encourage our, our representatives and our legislators to support the schools in that way. Uh, also to support elections, by the way, which is important. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a situation where this, this generational impact up across our workforce, across our economy is going to be sizable. We, we have yeah. already known that there are glaring inequities in a lot of respects in, when it comes to education. And so hopefully this will be an opportunity for us to address some of those, but it's not going to be something that you know, they're, they're going to be able to just release a stimulus package and hey, in August, we got it all fixed. You know, everyone's got their device because it involves connectivity. It involves teacher training. It involves, you know, a lot of pieces to the puzzle. Right. And good learning design and, 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 you know, that's where I would also be, you know, make sure that the teachers also understand there's an extraordinary amount of pressure on you and, and everyone wants to acknowledge that. 
um, that it's going to be hard, but you know, you're going to do your best and we're going to make it all through this. And there will be some lasting, uh, you mentioned generational impact on this. Um, but you know, at the same time, we got to get through the current situation first. Right. And I would also encourage you, and I keep a, a close eye on this, uh, if for no other reason than I have a lot of personal stake in it. Lots of interesting conversations about vaccines and public health and how do we vaccinate, you know, uh, uh, 7 billion people. And, you know, it, it, I, I don't want to be, I, I want to be a realist here more than I am kind of a negative Nancy about it. I think it's really important to understand that this year is probably going to be, you know, 100% impacted by it. I think the year after will be significantly impacted by this. And there might be a lot of institutions that can't go back to normal for a long time. And then also, we're going to have to also start to keep a close eye on the fact that some institutions won't survive this, right? Like, and, and I'm not talking just about uh, particular organizations. I think there are some some uh, 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 very traditional educational um, uh, 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 institutions that their their long term health is in question. I think about the College Board and ACT is just two examples that that almost everything about what they do has been uh, impacted not only by the the micro trends of the pandemic but macro trends over the last decade or two. I'm not saying they'll survive or not. What I am saying is that. A lot of stuff is going to be long-term impacted by this. And so, you know, let's work on being part of the conversations to say that the things we, 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 we need and, and have to evolve and develop, uh, get kept. And then the things that maybe need a little bit of, 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 of modernization, uh, get revised or scrapped. And so, you know, short-term thinking, very important, right? Cause we have an immediate challenge ahead of us, but also we got to start thinking about some long-term thinking as well, too. Well, that's a great segue to an article about vaccines. And this is from the New York Times podcast, The Daily, which I almost listen to daily. I, I, I catch at least three or four a week, you know, maybe sometimes more. And so this was their episode yesterday on July the 21st. It's rather shocking. And it says in part because of speed, but it's also because of anti-vax. And this has to do with disinformation and conspiracy theory and a lot of stuff that we actually uh, were talking about at the Mountain Mood. And and yesterday we did a uh, Brian, Brian uh, uh, Turnbaugh and I did a session for the, the, the current you know digital literacy conference we're in. This podcast from the New York Times cites some studies that show about 50% of folks in the United States today say they are not sure they would take a vaccine, especially if it was on an accelerated schedule. There's just a lot of mistrust. And unfortunately, the, the information landscape that we live in is so ripe for weaponization and manipulation by disinformation and by bad actors. And so... I think, and, and they point this out in that podcast, we're all talking about vaccine and, and feeling like that is, you know, going to be our salvation. But I think it's important for us to have that marathon mindset. This is not a sprint. And even when a vaccine, and, and maybe there's going to be several, right? Dr. Fauci has said some very positive and optimistic things, and I hope he's right. He's certainly a heck of a lot smarter than I am about all this stuff. Even when we have one or more vaccines that are identified as safe for humans, the ramp up of getting all of those, you know, created and out to people is one part of the puzzle. But like how many folks in society do we need to have take the vaccine in order to, you know, have a significant impact? 
Um, and, and I don't know. I don't know. So it is, we're, we're in this for a while, folks. And I think that, I mean, my, my experiences in these three virtual conferences, I, it's not an exaggeration to say that I think this has been the best professional development summer for me ever. Now on the, on the downside, we're not going to get to go camping. I was telling Jason before that we started the show, like we've, I've joked about like actually locking our phones and computers mm-hmm. up in a storage place next week for a day or something. I mean, we're, we're probably not going to do that, but you know, I've really relished the opportunity to be offline and, you know, we're going to choose to to do some of that, but Anyway, it's, you know, that's, I'm, I'm getting uh, distracted. The, the point is, wow, can online virtual learning ever be powerful? Uh, wow, do we ever need these opportunities to sharpen the saw as educators? And again, if we have a, a mindset of long term, um, we're just going to need to continue to extend invitations to other educators to, to take opportunities to learn new, new strategies and skills. And, um, it's, it's about professional development and professional learning. And so it's, you know, here we are, it's, it's a good day to have some skills in, in online and remote learning. Yep, absolutely. And, um, I, one quick note about professional development. The other thing that's also been true because travel costs are not involved, I'm likely to participate. And, you know, I don't travel extensively, uh, on, on company dime at work. There's, uh, one or two, uh, national events I do a year and one or two regional events I do a year. Um, and once in a while I get to go to ISTE, which is super great. But the, uh, uh, you know, because that th- that travel's been canceled, right? And I also like for me personally, I really don't know the next time I'm, I'm going to be able to personally go to uh, uh, any professional development uh, event, whether it's 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 close to me or not. I, there are some conferences that have moved online. For example, the National Council for the Social Studies uh, National uh, Conference has moved online it's later this year, and I I could never really justify the travel expense to go to that, even though it's it's a passion for me. I've been reignited in in my love for for thinking about teaching history and, and the social studies in light of both the COVID pandemic and also the broader social unrest in the United States and watching my former students out there literally in the streets, right? That has really inspired me to think about my role in the 13 years I was a history teacher. Well, I might get to go to NCSS this year. Like that, and that would be great for me. It's online. The It's relatively inexpensive. They're going to have to pay for a, a convention hall. It's not the same experience. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, you don't get to hang out in the hallways. You don't get to meet old friends in the way you would otherwise. I know one of the great joys of, of things like ISTE for me is I got to run into people like Wes, uh, who that's our opportunity to see each other is when we're both at that particular event. But at the same time, I'm going to be exposed to topics that, uh, and, and I got to say, so far, so good. Um, uh, 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 there is a lot of, um, there's just a lot of interesting things that I wouldn't have access to that you know, going online done that. So I'm not saying all conferences should move online. I love conferences. I think the well-done ones are really important professional development events. But if we do find some models where we can have more virtual events, I think that's a good thing too. Here And here's a takeaway for us to remember with our students. There was, I think it's on Facebook, some buzz or like, so Oklahoma City, they're going to have kids online for eight hours a day or whatever. I mean, probably not. But we have got to remember how draining it can be to be in front of the screen for so long, right? And so, you know, I'm enjoying the opportunity to, to go take walks and to take breaks uh, and, and not to be, you know, 
chained, as it were, to the screen. And I think that's a vitally important thing for us to remember. I really do think this is an opportunity for us to shift a lot of our thinking about seat time because this is how we have really measured learning in so many places is the number of hours, the number of days, you've got to sit in that seat. And we just have faith that if you're sitting in that seat, you know, you're going to learn. And so that is not the method we want to be, you know, measuring our, our remote learning by. And so I think that all of us need to continue to preach to ourselves wellness and self-care. We need to do that as educators. We need to do that for our students. And that's certainly been one of the strongest messages that I've heard this week at the uh, Summer Institute for Digital Literacy is just the importance of relational connections and maybe cutting down how much content you think you're going to cover. But, you know, having those those check-ins and, and making time for those relationships, it quality education is not just about delivering content and delivering information. And unfortunately, when it comes to, to distance learning, online learning, remote learning, uh, you know, some people's ideas about pedagogy can really be sort of unmasked there. And in order to be effective, we're going to have to do a lot more than simply deliver information effectively. We need to connect with our students and we're going to need to check for understanding and we're going to need to continue to, uh, you know, have this interactive experience that humanizes us, you know, rather than dehumanizes us and making us feel like robots. So, yep, there we go. All right. Well, hey, we've taken half the hour and uh, <laughs> we haven't really touched my air goals yet. Um, well, Wes, anywhere that you'd like to go particularly next or I could suggest a topic if you like? You know what? I'd like to go down to the media literacy uh, topic uh, well, do. and tech correction, too. But uh, let me just say, let me give you two quick uh, articles. Um, well, I guess, I don't know. We can kind of take them in order. Under tech correction, you got some, some ones in here. So Twitter, yay Twitter, uh, is cracking down on the conspiracy group QAnon. I actually used a story about QAnon and Facebook uh, and my wife and I, this for the, the, the uh, keynote for the Mountain Moot. And so um, Twitter has uh, cracked down. They've banned over 7,000 accounts. And, you know, I, I mentioned this in the keynote. I, I wish I didn't even have to know about this or mention this. But, you know, QAnon, like we've got candidates, you know, in addition to our chief executive here in the United States who's retweeted, you know, accounts and posts like hundreds of times, we have candidates now that have won primaries in a number of areas that are openly supportive of this ridiculous conspiracy theory that uh, even if you just start to describe, you know, its fundamental basis, you're like, you feel defiled. So I'm glad Twitter has done this. Um, this is going to, I'm sure, be be controversial. Um, I'll put in the, uh, the show notes as well, the actual uh, Twitter post that that they chaired for Twitter safety. Uh, that particular post says, we've been clear that we will take strong enforcement action on behavior that has the potential to lead offline harm. In line with this approach, this week we are taking further action on so-called QAnon activity across the service. And so this is a thread um, that they, they have. So it says, we're permanently suspending accounts on topics that we know are engaged in violations of our uh, multi-account policy, coordinating abuse around victims, evading previous suspensions. And it says, in addition, we'll no longer serve content and accounts associated with QAnon in trends and recommendations. We're going to work to ensure we're not highlighting this activity in search and conversations. We're going to block URLs associated with QAnon from being uh, shared on Twitter. This is aggressive 
And this is fantastic. It is going to be criticized, right? Because this is censorship. This is moderation of the con of the of the uh, platform. But, you know, at the heart of the conversations Brian Turnbaugh and I have been having really for the past year, the last two months, you know, intensively in our conspiracies and culture wars project, it's how are we going to resolve these issues where, um, and this is Tristan Harris's words, freedom of speech shouldn't mean freedom of reach, you know, and hate speech and what is what would be considered malinformation that means uh false information deliberately spread with the de with the intent to harm of course that's hard right it's hard to determine intent but we are we are i i firmly believe going to need to take action to address the weaponization of these platforms. And so um, I see this as a positive, but I think it's certainly going to be controversial and it's, and it could also invite some, uh, some legislative responses. One other thing that I will mention and then see what you think, Jason. Um, I don't know who this guy is, Teddy Schiefler. He's got a verified Twitter account, <clears throat> but he um, uh, tweeted a direct quote from Eric Schmidt, you know, former CEO of Google. And this was on July 17th. And, and I'll just read real briefly what's in bold that uh, Schmidt talked about in terms of, you know, moderation laws, regulation, China, um, you know, creativity, the, the tech platforms. Here's what, what Eric Schmidt, you know, former, former uh, CEO of, um, of Google said, the problem with calling for new regulation for regulation now is, so you don't like something on Facebook. What rule are you going to apply? You don't like the way Google ranks things, write the regulation. You'll find it's very difficult to write it in a way that's coherent. And he continues and basically says, we need to be really specific. Like child pornography is a specific thing that folks agree is terrible and should not, you know, be on, be on platforms. And, and what he's saying is we need that kind of specificity. It is potentially dangerous to, you know, have government regulation. So I'm glad to see Twitter taking action. I, this is going to be the ongoing story of the tech correction, right? Because I, I think that a part of this is not going to be just letting the platform self-regulate. It's going to involve some consumer protection law that we have seen in, in other areas. So what are your thoughts, Dr. Neifer? Well, I mean, it's interesting that uh, we keep kind of the, the major tech media seems to be going back and forth from it's too hard to regulate to like, why are we regulated yet? Right. And I don't, I, I, I personally don't have a, uh, 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 a view on this yet other than to say, we're not going to get regulation right the first time around, but that's not a reason to not figure out a way to at least have some public regulation of these platforms. And I see that, uh, 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 Ryan Hazen is in our audience tonight and noted that, that there is, you know, private companies can ultimately do what they want to here because you have no right to post on Twitter as an example of this. It's one of the reasons why that, that I was at one point so aggressive and in fact started a campaign in Missoula to encourage the Missoula and our local newspaper to take comments off of, of, of their newspaper articles because I felt like it was detrimental to 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 news uh, coverage in, in the city of, 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 of Missoula. And as it turned out, 
so many people, uh, their response to that was is they had freedom of speech concerns about that. The thing is, you have no right to make a comment on the bottom of a newspaper page. In fact, I could start a web page and uh, allow comments from only selected few or delete or even mock the comments of, of those I don't like, and I would be perfectly within the First Amendment to do that. But uh, because these platforms are more powerful than simply communication, I'm especially thinking about Facebook and articles we've covered in past weeks where there is so much going on in regards to providing platforms for people to quietly organize uh, things that I think that culturally we would generally agree are not super great things and in fact are are encouraging radicalizations of people's views. I do think the government has a place in there. I'm sure we're going to get it wrong, maybe several times, but the only way we can start that process is to try something out and then start evolving it. And also, there's going to be some input on the courts here. There's going to be input from First Amendment advocates. And in fact, all uh, uh, civil rights advocates will probably have something to say about this. But we're never going to get to this place until we draw a line and say, this is where we're going to start on this. Europe's a good example of this. There's lots of things going on in Europe to regulate a lot of these platforms. I don't agree with all of it. Uh, the right to be forgotten is a good example of something that we've talked about in the past on, uh, on the, the podcast. I think the right to be forgotten is a little silly, actually, and it diminishes the fact that, uh, you know, there, there, there is usefulness in knowing past situations uh, as they're related to individual people. I'm sure my mind can be changed about that. In fact, my mind can be changed about just about anything. But, like, but you know, they've evolved that regulation over time because at, at first blush, it was too broad. So they've had to evolve and narrow it in places and widen it in others. And that's how you, you know, creatively craft good regulation in government. So, uh, yeah, I, it's interesting to listen to people like, I'm so worried about the regulation and, you know, companies and value and platforms, but I, I, it's just these, we're not regulating 1940s newspapers here. We're regulating massive media conglomerates that are proving to be much more potent than simply, um, uh, uh, you know, allowing people to express their views. And the Internet is so different today in 2020 than it was 10 years ago in, in 2010. I mean, yeah. the, the virality, the velocity, uh, and the ways in which uh, the platforms have been optimized for attention. They're not op- – I, I read this uh, in, the, in a fantastic book called Like War, uh, which I'm, I'm reading now. Uh, they're optimized for, for um, virality, not validity. Right. And so what is valid, what is true is not what is amplified. It is what is going to go go viral the fastest Um, on the same uh, area in our show notes. uh, I want to point out there was a great podcast that came out on your uh, on your undivided attention. This is from the Center for Humane Technology that Tristan Harris co-founded. This is their July 8th episode. It's called The World According to Q. And uh, th- this is about QAnon. They have an expert, Travis View, who has been a researcher, who has been who is a researcher, and he's been working for several years on QAnon. And so um, I'm really glad to see Twitter specifically cracking down. I do think we need to see the same kind of thing happen with Facebook. But again, they're an independent company, and we don't have regulation that is requiring that. And so it's going to depend upon leadership, and of course. You know, their bottom line, like it actually benefits when people are more engaged and angry with, you know, content and with each other. Like I think Facebook makes more money in a polarized world. And so that's where, you know, the idea of them self-regulating and doing that 
successfully to a point of not needing any kind of government intervention is, is pretty dubious. So the last two things I'll mention here in the media literacy, these are crazy. Um, but a great article. This is from the Washington Post on July 17th. The troll who staged a fake flag burning at Gettysburg says people will believe the most unrealistic nonsense. This is really, really crazy. So this guy uh, has been a self-professed troll uh, for quite a while. And some of the things that he's done is he's created these fake events for Antifa, like we're going to go burn a Confederate flag at Gettysburg, and then all these white supremacists and you know Nazis and and, and folks with weapons literally show up to defend the the statue of Robert E. Lee in the Gettysburg Cemetery, and you know the like sixteen different agencies had to spend all this money on July Fourth to be able to defend the cemetery, and it was completely fabricated by this guy who's a troll, who's done a number of different things. In some cases, he's created websites that right-wing sites, like in Breitbart, like they've gone crazy over, but this guy's just making them up. And in fact, one day he made like $3,000, I think, in a week on ads, you know, on one of these websites. He he created a site called 9-11 was funny. And, you know, it, these things were taken down, but it's it's crazy. So he's like, oh, yeah, the these people are, are stupid and I'm just I'm goading them or whatever. But like, oh, really, please, you know, apply your creative skills and write a wonderful novel on Amazon. Wouldn't that be great? You know, because these kinds of things are not constructive for society. And this guy, you know, has a megaphone when he's able to do this on Twitter and create whatever websites that, that he wants. And so the other one that's just kind of wild. Uh, was also from the same day, July 17th, and it was from the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensics Research Lab, which I am not actually that familiar with. It's called Disinformation About Antifa Provides Fodder for Foreign Propagandists. And, you know, some of this stuff has been picked up by our president and others as well. And so, like, this whole thing of trying to paint the protesters as, oh, man, it's just this extremist, you know, terrorist group and, and Antifa and it's there's so much coming from so many different directions and there are bad actors deliberately polluting the information environment. Hence our need for media literacy is stronger than ever. But thankfully Dr. Neifer has a solution to all of this. And uh, I think we'll be hearing about that in next week's show, right? You're, you're, yeah. You're, I'll, magic wand. Magic yeah. Wand. I'll, I'll just jump into the Dr. Neifer lab back here where I've got cooking up uh, 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 things for, you know, to fix all the, 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 the ills of the world. So um, let me give a couple things that are somewhat related to this. Uh, these are privacy articles. They're, they're, they're close to the same thing. They, they regard protesters. The Guardian reported um, on July 17th that if you have been recently in a protest, uh, there is a chance that you have been, uh, your face has been captured and you've been thrown into a face um, archive. And um, they would talk about a, a number of, of law enforcement agencies. They say one in four are using facial recognition technology and oftentimes they are uh, amassing massive databases of, of faces that appear here and you know like uh, obviously um, uh, facial recognition has been used in context of a lot of different security platforms in the past past 10 years uh, for example a lot of major venues will use face recognition both to a uh, spot problematic uh, customers, but also uh, to keep track of uh, uh, things for as, as, as uh, innocent as 
you know, where do you put concessions at baseball games, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I think that's an interesting juxtaposition to another article that appeared um, today in Recode, I'm sorry, yesterday in Recode, that apparently um, as part of the federal intervention in Portland, Oregon, again, not a politics show, so we're not going to jump into that, but as part of the federal intervention in, in Portland, Oregon, apparently the, the the person that was one of the people that was picked up by federal, the kind of uh, undescript federal agents, was actually spotted in um, a YouTube live stream, right? So, like, someone was watching it, and it goes through the kind of process about how they analyzed the live stream, uh, took screenshots of protesters' faces, and then used that as a guidance to then ultimately track down and pick up uh, some Someone it was part of the Portland protests, and you know it's 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 a different world when we're talking about you know uh, established cameras set up in a central location of which there's been that for for literally decades. Uh, we, we've had that. That's different than using the live stream that you are broadcasting right over to YouTube and have that be an instrument of law enforcement. That's different than using uh, uh, door cams that uh, many uh, uh, police departments have agreements with the, the nest people and the, the door cam folks to, to literally use footage from uh, door cams uh, in order to, you know, help surveil uh, uh, individuals. That's a different game. And, Again, I don't have an easy answer where that line is. I, I, for me, it's probably a little more on the civil liberty side than it is on the public safety side. But the rules that we have in place to help regulate this, to limit this, to determine when this is appropriate, weren't created in an era where everyone was sticking a camera in front of their house uh, that was unwittingly becoming a security camera for a neighborhood. And some, I'm sure, are comfortable with that, uh, it, it, law enforcement using that. But, uh, again, uh, especially in the era of civil unrest that we're in right now, it, it's, it's troubling and certainly worth discussion um, between you and your colleagues and most certainly you and your students. That Portland stuff is really, really scary. And so, you know, um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be important to see what happens in the courts. And um, it's just... Uh, it's fairly dark. So I, um, you know, I, I think, what was the show? There was a PBS uh, frontline, um, uh, about the, was it surveillance nation? Anyway, it was, I think it was in December of last year, just a fantastic, uh, maybe two hour episode that was about surveillance. And so, um, this is obviously how some of the politics are being played out here, not just in the United States, in Brazil and other countries as well. You know, in the name of safety, we have to, you know, make sure that we we, we give our security forces unlimited power to, you know, do whatever they want to be able to protect us. Um, so it's it's important that we, uh, you know, hopefully have some uh, some some protections uh, and we need to at some point look at those laws because, you know, we have interpreted privacy protections here in the United States. We don't have the explicit privacy protections, you know, that, that some other countries like in Europe do. And um, certainly we all want to be safe, but <clears throat> we also, I, I hope, don't want to live in, you know, an environment like uh, Argentina in the eighties during the dirty war. You know, I don't, I don't think that's where we want to live. So. Sure. Absolutely. Okay, Wes, uh, we're quickly heading towards the top of the hour here. What else would you like to get in in this week's episode? 
you know, uh, why don't you do those TikTok articles under international intrigue? I think those are pretty important. Sure. Well, um, uh, uh, so TikTok, which is a Chinese app, uh, uh, has become under kind of international scrutiny because we are in the middle of a, um, a, a bit of, of, of an international uh, conflict with China, uh, not, uh, uh, it's at most a cold, uh, conflict in that, you know, it's mostly a war of words and economics and a bit about technology right now, but, TikTok, which uh, uh, is an extremely popular app in the United States, especially amongst the younger set. Uh, I just can't believe I to use the term younger set, a sign that, that, that Mr. Knifer is getting older. But amongst the youngsters, they like the TikTok. And as it turns out, uh, there's a perception that the TikTok app may be a massive security uh, uh, issue. And um, the, the two signs of that is, first, that the United States has mentioned TikTok and other social media apps, when Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, as a, um, a, a, a subject for banning because they could be spying on U.S. users. And um, again, I, you know, TikTok, a lot of articles have talked about the TikTok issues say that TikTok feels in the middle of this and that you know they have sworn that they are not an instrument of the state and yada 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 but it's one thing for rhetorically the United States Secretary of State especially in the middle of a significant disagreement with the government of China an economic war um, certainly a, a ratchet up rhetoric you might have heard today that the Houston uh, the Chinese consulate in Houston was shut down by the United States government more escalated rhetoric right like Lots of, 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 of rhetoric back and forth. But the other article I wanted to share was that Wells Fargo has told uh, uh, members of their staff they're using Wells Fargo-owned phones. You may not install or use the app TikTok on a Wells Fargo phone. And that's that's a bit of a different piece there because you would assume that there's actionable intelligence on behalf of security agents at Wells Fargo, especially in regards to a Wells Fargo-owned phone, right, that says there's a specific threat there. And, you know, Wells Fargo being a, a large banking conglomerate, that uh, that's an interesting piece of this. At the same time, lots of creators exclusively on TikTok. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I was early to TikTok a couple of years ago because I had a teenage niece that introduced it to me. It's never really caught on with me personally. I know it exists. I understand the platform, understand how it's used, but there's a lot of creators on TikTok where that's where they exclusively broadcast content. United States creators exclusively broadcast content that are saying that, you know, it's a real problem if the United States decides to ban an app. So I guess, Wes, um, are you still a prolific TikTok broadcaster or have you backed off that a little bit? I think I have one post, so my, my daughter helped me, you know, put that up. So, no, um, I am, though, paying attention because the speed with which folks have been able to achieve incredible follower numbers, you know, it dwarfs YouTube. Uh, PewDiePie, who we've talked about before on the show, has been the, the most popular, you know, YouTube channel for a number of years. He took basically 10 years to build that. I've read statistics that, you know, some folks on, on uh, TikTok have been able to build the same following in one year. And so it is incredible. And the other comment that I'll have is that the way machine learning works, and I'm going to talk as if I'm an expert here. So I've just, you know, read some articles and I stay at the Holiday Inn Express, you know, sometimes when we travel, um, you know, it, in, it relies on ingesting 
vast amounts of data. This is one reason when we think about artificial intelligence in the race of China versus the United States, that some people pessimistically feel like China is definitely going to, to win because as an authoritarian government, they can, you know, take over and, and require their companies to basically do whatever it is that they want. And the company that owns TikTok, like that is not their target app and market overall. It's really a, a, a company that is aspiring to, to dominate the world in machine learning and artificial intelligence. And so where this goes is that when you do have literally millions and millions of eyeball hours you know, and, and face recordings that are in this system. And all of those are being ingested into a, a, a machine learning based algorithm that is getting smarter and smarter with the, with the increased amount of data that's being put into it. Wow. Uh, there's, there's tremendous capability there. So I agree with you that, that, you know, there's, there's a lot of smoke here. That probably means there's fire. You wouldn't see companies making that kind of announcement without some, uh, significant evidence. I think this is also a part of this continuing, like we've got certain issues on the show where we'll talk about week after week. China, Huawei, 5G, you know, the, uh, we don't get into, you know, politics in terms of trade war stuff as much, but in terms of technology, there's this massive, uh, choice that the United States specifically is wanting countries to make to say, you need to choose the West and choose, uh, us. Do not choose Huawei. Do not choose China. And I think this, uh, these headlines about TikTok are another reflection of that ongoing fight over technology and who can spy on who and what kinds of technology we need to use. I was actually told this week that I shouldn't be using, uh, I think, Signal because uh, it's the one the CIA can all can read everything from. But, you know, I think Telegram is I, I don't know which of those messaging apps it's we were having discussions and debates about WhatsApp versus Telegram versus Signal, you know, and uh, it's a lot of it's opaque. But anyway. TikTok is, is, they're very popular. And, and interestingly, to go back to our, our um, discussion about moderation, you know, part of what they're able to do is to, is they've, they've been very deliberate and specific about content they're not allowing. And then the content they are featuring, and they've got some really smart folks that are able to engineer for attention and again, for virality. So it, uh, it's not an app I'm planning to delete right now. But we're going to continue to look at this this issue and, and see what else happens, because kind of like when we saw, I think it was Kaspersky a, a couple of years ago or whatever. Right. Every U.S. Uh, homeland Security, government, military organization was required to not use that because either it had been specifically hijacked by. Uh, you know, Russian operatives, it's, it's a Russian company, or some people said it's the low level access that it gives to every bit of data on your computer. That means if you are compromised, it, it's like a reader for, for any, you know, it's like a spotlight in, on the Mac, you know, this indexes every file and every document. So anyway, when you, when you see organizations like that making big decisions about banning a technology, banning a company, it's, it's important to pay attention. Yep, absolutely. 
And then I'll just uh, pick up a, a quick a quick couple articles here, just in, in Chrome OS world. Uh, Chrome Operating System 84 was released this week, and this is really for the power users, the people that are utilizing uh, 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 higher-end Chrome devices and have lots of tabs open. They're really starting to nail down what the multi-window and, and uh, uh, the, the multi-screen functionality looks like, and they added a huge amount of functionality this week, so much so that when... Uh, uh, my first Chrome device that, uh, that updated to 84, I'm still trying to figure out how it works and get the keystrokes down. But for those of you that anticipate that you might be full-time on Chrome OS this fall, if you're a teacher at home, that's what your school district's buying you, or you yourself are looking for an extra device to spend more time on as part of working at home, uh, I think uh, especially middle-end and high-end Chromebooks should definitely be on your list. And then also, for those of you that are G Suite users, um, there is a new email experience that's beginning to be rolling out in the next couple of weeks that allow for better split-screening and... Um, uh, 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 kind of a new way of, of, of integrating more of a communication center into uh, Google Gmail when you're on the web. So if you spend as much time in your email as I do, email is a huge part of my experience as a um, uh, as a as a, a virtual school administrator. Then you should look forward to that as well. All right. Anything else that uh, you'd like to to pick up here? We're uh, got about uh, five minutes. Four- Four minutes left. We we our shows are tending to be you know just about under uh, sixty five minutes. So we yeah. tend to be sixty three, sixty five minutes. We want to thank everybody who's in our chat room today. By the way, remind everybody that our show notes are on edtechsr.com slash links. And when you have an opportunity to tune in live, we love for you to put a comment into the chat, whether you're on Facebook Live or YouTube, and we can be able to find out you're there. And uh, it is uh, always good to have feedback. We always Appreciate Peggy George. Peggy, how many virtual conferences have you been in so far this uh, this uh, summer? I think it was last last week where we said your homework was <clears throat> to follow Peggy George immediately on Twitter because she is one of the most informed people when it comes to uh, you know v- virtual and online learning. Here's a question Peggy's got for you, Jason. What are your recommendations for the best laptop for a college student about to start as a freshman? Chrome or MacBook Air? <laughs> Interesting choice. Um, if you are a Google Apps school, if they're going to a Google Apps college, I would I would recommend. I think the one that uh, is is kind of the current. Uh, it's the uh, I think it's the Acer Seven Fourteen Flip. I think is the name of it. It's about five hundred dollars at Best Buy right now. Really excellent Chromebook. Assuming they don't need some specialized application, I really do think the Chromebook is a is a is the perfect college computer. Now, if they're going to engineering, in fact, the Mac is probably not a good choice. Either I would go with like a ThinkPad, the 14-inch or the 13-inch ThinkPads are awesome. But uh, yeah, I would say the the latest release um, uh, uh, Acer 14 Flip 714 Flip is what my recommendation would be if they're going to Google App School. And I'll share not for college students, but uh, we're going to be having a couple different platforms in use, and we're going to be using uh, for our sixth grade I, brand new iPads this next year. But then the plan is at Christmas or right after Christmas to go ahead and switch. And so seventh grade is going to go iPad and then, you know, Chromebook for, for sixth grade. And we're going to have our fifth and eighth graders on Chromebooks all year. So anyway, it's a, a year of uh, of doing some testing and seeing what the affordances of 
different platforms are for students. And uh, last week at the Mountain Mood, I was certainly inspired by all the use of Moodle and yearning actually for a more robust learning management system. Because, I mean, initially we heard people say Google Classroom is not an LMS. We haven't heard that as much lately, but it's not. It, it doesn't have, you know, 40 interactive options that you can plug in and all these other things that robust LMSs do. So anyway, uh, definitely, I think an importance when we think about remote learning of designing in most cases for multiple platforms and uh, not locking yourself into a single platform. But, you know, the web and HTML5 has uh, come a long way. So thankfully, there's a ton that we can do with that, no matter what device we have. Okay, Wes, uh, let's move on to our Geeks of the Week. What would you like to share with us this week? I will just do two tonight. One that I learned about today in a conference uh, I, a workshop I attended, Moat, M-O-T-E. Uh, it is recommended or it is touted as the faster, friendlier way to comment and feedback. And so I tested this a little bit in our session. Basically, once you install the extension inside a comment in a Google Doc or or, or Sheet or a slideshow or whatever, uh, you have the little icon and then you can record your voice. And so uh, I do think a screencast like Screencastify can really be great when you're giving feedback on a document to students because you can mark it up and they can see whatever you're, you're doing and it's not just your voice, but uh, I think this is going to be interesting, and I'm I'm particularly going to be curious as a uh, second language teacher, as a Spanish teacher this next year, uh, you know, to utilize these kinds of tools that allow for recording and and for interaction. And then the second one I'll share, I also learned about this morning, and this is the Google Certified Coach program. I had not heard about this and uh, glad to see Google moving into this area. I would encourage everybody, if you do not have instructional coaches, learning coaches in your organization, uh, this is something that we all need. We'd never, I don't think, just send send students out, you know, to the football field and say, hey, guys, you know, you're going to be fine. Just go ahead and, you know, teach yourself, heal thyself. Uh, we will have coaches that are going to help make sure that uh, things are being done well and we're introducing, you know, new skills and strategies. And the same thing is true for learning and digital learning. So glad to see Google stepping up with that. How about yourself, Dr. Neifer? Do you have a Geek of the Week for us? I do. Um, I am really thrilled that on this coming Saturday, July the 25th, I will be participating in the TeacherCast and NCC Beyond the Bootcamp Google event. And it is several hours of professional development. It starts at 9 a.m. Eastern, which is really early in the morning, uh, Mountain and Pacific time. I'm going to be featured at noon Eastern or 9 a.m mountain time and i will be focusing on setting up of the google browser for a uh, super success and so um a great opportunity to uh hear from wonderful speakers uh jeff and then shannon davenport who's the professional uh learning director at ncce i've been working together to put together this amazing event it will be broadcast live it will be available in chunks later as part of both jeff's uh, teacher cast youtube channel and the ncc uh, uh, channel so you're going to hear from some wonderful speakers that can give you some good indicators on the greatness of the googles and so i hope you join us then 
But is that a paid event or a free event? It is not. It's free, right? It's the summer of free PD, ladies and gentlemen. So uh, we hope to see you there. Um, but this is not uh, PD on Saturday. This is PD on Wednesday nights. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Wes and I join each other each and every, well, almost each and every Wednesday night to talk through the week's technology headlines with um, our uh, kind of little spin. But when we're not doing the podcast, Wes, where can people find you on the Internet? Well, the rumor is I'm still on Twitter at WFryer, and my blog is speedofcreativity.org. However, I've been doing the most work the last couple months on this Conspiracies and Culture Wars project. In fact, I'll be posting, and I'll put this into the show notes, a link to both the Mountain Moot keynote from last week and then last night's workshop uh, from the Summer Institute on Digital Literacy. You can find that at medialiteracy.westfryer.com. And there's a link there for conspiracies and culture wars. How about you, Jason? Awesome. I am on the Twitter as a tech savvy teacher. I also work with the awesome Northwest Council for Computer Education. Uh, you can find uh, the blog. I participate in blog.ncc.org. But as it relates to this, this is the EdTech Situation Room. We're here on Wednesday nights. If you can't join us live, although please do, we broadcast over YouTube. We broadcast over Facebook. Um, we would love for you to join our chat room each and every week. Peggy George is there each and every week moderating our chat. But if you can't join us there, go to our website site edtechsr.com you can download tiny versions of the podcast you can also find us wherever finer podcasts are aggregated and if you want to check out the links and there's always at least 10 to 20 links that we don't even get within a mile in uh, of during our, our our broadcast every week uh, edtechsr.com slash links and you can see that document there we wish you a great week stay safe stay savvy and we'll see you next time on the edtech situation room good night